Okay, well, let's uh, open in prayer, and then Neil will jumpstart us. We have, every time Neil said it's like we have just too much material, we really have too much material tonight. And I would have picked this to be one of the least amount, but it's just so interesting and, and important. So let's get started. Father, we are grateful for uh, the heritage that we have. Thankful, first of all, that we are joint heirs with Christ. We are grateful for the life that is in Jesus, for our brothers and sisters in this body that means so much to us, and for our brothers and sisters who have gone before us and have paved the way, laid a foundation, and on whose shoulders we stand. Thank you for the material we're going to cover tonight. We pray that you'll help us to say the things we need to, leave the other stuff out, have great discussion, and just instruct our minds and encourage and strengthen our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brad. Well, let's go ahead and get, uh, get started. Here's our agenda. We're going to do just a brief overview of uh, where we left off last time. If you remember, we looked at uh, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and the Wesley brothers uh, during the first Great Awakening and the ministries and impact that those gentlemen had on both um, England and America. And I, I do have to say that uh, this, just like Brad was saying, there's more here than we can get out. As I was getting closer and closer to tonight, I, I think this was perhaps the, the most anxious I've been in order to not miss a qualification on a statement that I make or not miss a detail that would be a, a blessing to you. So I hope you can be patient with us. And uh, we do approach this prayerfully uh, each time. So we're, I'm really looking forward to the lessons. These are big lessons that we can learn personally as well as, uh, as, a, as a church worldwide. So here are some of the, the trends that were taking place in the midst of the 18th century. This is, uh, again, during and after the time of Jonathan Edwards. 1700s uh, was a time of enlightenment where the philosophy became more man-centered. They found out a way to use their reason to exclude God. And uh, that led in several different directions, depending on uh, which philosopher you happened to follow at the time. Uh, rationalism was one that, that really took off, especially in America where it was so individually minded, it was independent. You want to rely on humanity and the good that was in, within humanity and see how far we can carry ourselves. And you can see where that leaves very little room for God. Uh, the influence of thinkers like John Locke, and this is not the John Locke from Lost. I know some of you are thinking that, but this is the philosopher. Uh, he took that rationale and, and is really the poster child for it. That, uh, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because I really don't know a whole lot. But he was the, the poster boy for a lot of folks in America, especially during this period, where they really looked to Locke and, and his philosophical followers in order for the independent spirit, the, the morality of humanity, but not so much the godliness. It, it, it's almost like you can imagine the verse of they recognize God's power, but you know, they recognize the godliness, but deny the power thereof. And that you can see in the influence of 
people like uh, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, who were also very philosophically robust, almost to the point where they're more philosophical than religious because several of those founding fathers uh, are Christian by name only. Uh, they would prefer uh, something more that would better be described as deism, where there is a higher power because they weren't to the point yet where science could validate their claims of, or their desire to eliminate God completely in an atheist fashion. Um, but they thought that you know, God is out there, but he's disinterested in us. He's given us the tools to make ourselves better, and that's what we're going to do. And you can really see that shape America. So we've got two routes in America. There's the, the rational human side, and then there's this religious revival that keeps taking place here and there, pockets all across the, the colonies. I'd like to just interject Paul Johnson, who is a British historian. I may have said this in this class before, but uh, who's a believer, very strong, committed believer, said that if America had been founded a hundred years prior or a hundred years subsequent to when it was, it would, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence would have been peppered with biblical language, but it was formed at the height of rationalism, the age of reason. It was, um, so a lot of it, and, and just like our politicians today, those guys knew how to use God to accomplish political purposes and to gain political power, that kind of a thing. And, and it was a much more, it was much more closely associated with the God of the Bible than it would be today when they talk about God. But so that kind of throws us off. And not, not saying there weren't true believers. There were believers in, in, amongst the founding fathers. Mm -hmm. I want to think John Adams was. I read his biography. Tons of letters by him. Talks about God all the time. Never mentions Jesus. George Washington was a mason swore was sworn in on a masonic bible which denies the deity of christ had a mason funeral masonic funeral we have more writings of george washington than anybody in the 18th century maybe there's one other man of literature i can't recall but one time as an adult mentioned jesus lots about god and the being and providence and you know all of that but so uh that's where we were at this point and as will as will come up Part of that had to do with the war. Absolutely. Some of that would have um, been instilled in people anyway. But what that did to those who were religiously minded, who were focused or wanted to be focused on godly things, it even affected some of the university presidents. I can't remember his name right now, but we had a, a university seminary president who was of Scottish descent, and initially he was very much gospel-minded but as talk of independence came about, he became more focused on the independence of the colonies or the states and less focused on, on the gospel. Um, I believe it was Borgman who was talking about that, and he said, what Scottish, Scotchman would not take up the opportunity <laughs> to fight England? Right. And, and he used that opportunity uh, as a university uh, president to do so. And so we see even in the in the religious realm, both in the seminaries and in the churches, there was not a complete drop-off, but as a general theme, more people became more interested in politics than in faith. And if you remember uh, 
Jonathan Edwards did two things that really impacted the future generations of missions. One was he, as the premier theologian on the American shores, took seven years and ministered to the American Indians. Uh, he did not take a prominent role in some church or university right away, but he ministered uh, as a preacher and teacher uh, on the mission field. And then he also wrote the memoirs, The Life of David Brainerd, which really impacted uh, several, several people, not only on the American side, but in order to, to go out to foreign missions. And we'll see in the second half of tonight, uh, one person in particular that it, it really impacted. But we do want to see that um, the American Indians, um, Brad was sharing with me earlier that uh, there's a, a good Gospel Coalition article that we should not overlook uh, some of the details that we're going to look at William Carey. And we mention him as being referred to as the father of modern missions. Now, he's not the first missionary, but oftentimes he's the one looked to as being uh, the tip of the spear, you might say, as shaping foreign missions. And he was. He was. But missions in total did not begin with him. We can always... You know, look back to uh, St. Patrick, even from the, the early right. centuries. Yes, anybody read the private diary of uh, David Brainerd? Is that what it's called? Private? Uh, yeah, if, you're, if you have any bipolar tendencies, don't read it. He's bipolar. It, I, I had to quit halfway through. I was so depressed. It's depressed. You know, today he's so far out on the wings of eternity, you know, that I could touch the face of God almost in the next day. It's like in the pits of despair. Never mm. was a more hell-bound sinner than myself. You know. Such is life. Yes, it is. That, that's, that's real life. All right. <clears throat> so we're going to move to our first missionary. He is referred to as the father of modern missions because he has done so much to shape what we think of as the, the missionary movement and, and even how we operate even today. And thank, thankfully we have Ricky back here who now has one of the newest additions to the church, has his namesake. Uh, little Carey is named after William Carey. Uh, there, he, if you understand that uh, he was a, a simple man, a shoemaker. He actually, as a, as a child, uh, showed tendencies of being very apt towards the sciences, maybe botany or, or those types of outdoor sciences, but he had allergies and he couldn't spend time outside. So they had to keep him inside and because of that he, he picked up uh, a job as a shoemaker and, and did that not only uh, prior to his conversion but in order to sustain income for uh, his ministry. He did not receive any advanced education. He didn't go to Oxford or anything like that. And so I make it clear that he is from England. So he didn't have the finances to do that. He didn't have the, uh, wasn't bogged down with uh, a big long education there in England. Uh, but he did grow up in the Church of England. And like many during that time, many in that church was very lukewarm at best. He probably was not converted, uh, but then he uh, made acquaintances with a friend who was a, a Congregationalist, and uh, they went to church together and studied baptism together and decided that the Baptists were correct. 
so he did join the dissenting church and became a Baptist, uh, understanding both uh, faith in Christ and baptism which follows. And it is from that that uh, he really began to burn in him a heart to share the same gospel with others, not just others in his local area, but those who were far away on, on distant shores. And, and unfortunately, very unfortunately, that uh, when he brought this idea up in a, a church meeting, one of the, uh, the senior leaders uh, with a very distorted view of, of the faith, we might call it a hyper-Calvinism, uh, told him to you know, put that idea away, back off. If God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without you. And, and this is our first lesson, is that God ordains the means as well as the ends. He says he will regenerate sinners, but he uses us to go out and preach the gospel by which uh, the, the faith is placed in God. How beautiful are the feet who go and share good news. So from there, it slowly gained steam and they were able to pull together a mission society which had never been done before. This is one of those uh, moments where we look to him as a, as a formation, uh, a forming figure of the modern mission movement that a society for missions had never been put together before. And he did it not only in one church, but across churches. Uh, they formed, if I get the name right, the London Baptist Mission Society. And uh, that had never been done before, where they go between churches in order to support the mission of, of the gospel going abroad. So he did, uh, they did raise funds, and he did volunteer to be that one whom the society sends. They sent him to India. And we see there are a couple of quotes for him, from him. There, his, his passion, that bottom quote, is, is not the commission of our Lord still binding upon us? Can we not do more than we are doing, than we are now doing? And probably the, the quote that everyone has heard and may not know that is from him, expect, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. I don't know if you can do one without the other. God has put us here in order to work. So he makes it to India and uh, is very industrious, but in a very foreign land where the gospel is itself foreign, uh, converts are very slow, slow in coming. Um, he continues to learn the language and to translate. He translated the Bible in many, 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 many languages throughout the, the Indian subcontinent and was able to, to produce uh, several publications of the Bible in many of those languages. Which is pretty amazing for a relatively uneducated man. Mm. But uneducated in the uh, 19th century was different than uneducated in the 21st century. Yeah, just because he didn't go to a place like Oxford didn't mean, uh, doesn't mean that he wasn't himself educated. Uh, even before he, was, he left the mission field, he could read the Bible in not only English, but Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and he added to that uh, Hindi and Bali. Yeah, he was <laughs> self-educated man, I guess you might say. Uh, unfortunately, the, the mission in India took its toll. Uh, they lost, he and his wife lost their son to illness and death. And because of that, he lost his wife to depression. It was said that uh, from that point forward, she was not to be left alone. Someone had always 
to be with her, to, to watch and care for her. Um, but the, the work continued. He continued translating. He continued witnessing and teaching and preaching. Uh, some of those converts earlier, in, early converts, were actually fr from Europe. They were Portuguese. They were Dutch. Those people who uh, sailed into ports that he was nearby and those he would travel with or see quite often. And finally, finally he began to see Indians come to Christ. And uh, years later, they, they multiplied exponentially because of the, the work that he, he didn't do it himself. Uh, he was joined by other uh, missionaries, uh, some doctors, some printers, and always working together uh, to preach, to teach, to get the, the gospel out there. And here's our, our midway um, map. We look at India where William Carey serviced. And then to the east of that is Burma. I believe now it's called Myanmar. And that is the land where we find the ministry for Adoniram Judson. Uh, born a few years later. And uh, he was uh, also a very average person. He grew up in an agricultural farming family. Not much money, not much education, but he did show great signs of, of genius. Uh, it was said that his mother taught him to read and read the Bible in a week when he was three. His father, who was a minister, came home and his three-year-old Adoniram read an entire uh, page from the Bible. I don't know how that is done uh, aside from the gifting of, of God and, a, and of a determined mother. Uh, so his father as a minister had high hopes that he would be uh, a prominent preacher, a minister. He would go on to great things in education and theology. However, he had his own hopes. Uh, he wanted to be famous. He wanted to be prominent on his own, in his own right. And that desire conflicted with the religious desire and which one went out? The flesh won uh, because at this point he had not given his heart over to Christ. Uh, so he wrestled with this. Uh, he went off to higher education and found that rationalism and science was able to justify that deism that he so, much, so very much wanted. Um, but it was empty. It left him empty. So after school he traveled and uh, was unfulfilled in career unfulfilled in uh, himself really. Uh, traveling one night he came to an inn and stayed the night. The only room was next to a very sick man who the innkeeper said was possibly dying and I don't know how their wall insulation was back there. I'm, back then I'm sure he heard more than he cared to hear with the hacking and coughing and pleas of a, of a dying man. So the next morning he was checking out and he, he was just making small talk and polite conversation and asked the innkeeper, well, did that man check out? Did he get well? Uh, and he said, no, he's, he died. He's dead. And, and that, that really shook him, but okay. And then he asked, well, well, did you know the man? He said, yes, he was, uh, Ames, I believe was his name, James Ames, and he, he went to school over yonder. And James, he, Judson thought back, that was my friend who led me into deism while we were at school. Wow. Where is he now? Those coughs and pleas of agony that I heard last night was my friend 
who I know had no relationship with any God. Is that what I want to face? So that was his turning point where he really needed to investigate and find out for sure, is Christ real? And so he did. He, he settled that and uh, was faithfully converted. Below that, I'm going to skip just for a moment in the mission to Burma. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Um, you see the, the Baptist conviction. Um, uh, upon his conversion, he was a congregationalist, whereas uh, you might think you know, Presbyterian congregationalist, halfway covenant. Everybody during that portion of time, that era was brought into the church, whether you believed or not. You were sprinkled as an infant, and you remember. Uh, upon ministry in Burma and back and forth travels, he decided, well, how am I going to translate this word baptizo? Uh, let me study baptism. And he started. His wife didn't like it. He, he, she told, her, told him that uh, you better put it away. I don't care what you decide. I'm not changing my convictions. Uh, so he decided to continue studying, and he was convicted that, uh, you know, the Baptists were right, that it is believer's baptism. And again, his wife didn't like it, so she decided to study for herself so she can be convinced and perhaps convince him otherwise. And she was also likewise uh, convicted of uh, believer's baptism. So together, they had raised money and formed a Congregationalist Mission Society, which sent him to a foreign land. And here he is with a change of heart about a, a particular doctrine. And it really reminded me of our, our friend Denton White, who had a very similar situation. He was here a few months ago uh, speaking with us. And when you look at a particular, albeit secondary, doctrine, and you have a change of heart according to what the Bible convicts you that it says, what's the right thing to do? And, and our friend Denton, as well as Judson, uh, came to the same conclusion that I have to remove myself from the Congregationalist Mission Society because I am now convinced of the Baptist position. So he's in a foreign land and withdrawing himself from, from all his financial support. So what does he do? Well, he forms a Baptist Missionary Society. And uh, this is one of those, if William Carey was the first, Judson would have been the second. He, this sort of thing was new. It hadn't been done before. So he started actually two American-born mission societies. So the mission to Burma was very similar as Carey's mission to India. It was very slow, painstaking, uh, lots of drawbacks in uh, travel and illness and slow for converts to, to come along. <coughs> His wife became ill and they sent her back to the States in order to recover. And there she wrote an autobiography uh, of the two of their, uh, their work together in India um, while Adoniram continued to minister in Burma. And again, the foreign mission field took its toll. Upon her return, I can't remember exactly how long she was back with him, but not only did they lose two children before the age of one, but she then died. Uh, he took this very hard, of course, as anyone would, and it so happened that God brought to him another missionary who was a, a widow, uh, and, and they married there in, in the foreign land, and they continued to service together. Um, 
upon their return to America, he found that out, found out that, um, well, on the trip, his second wife died. In reaching America, he found out that he had become famous. This is after decades of service in Burma, where his, uh, his wife's, his first wife's biography of their work became very well known, very popular. And he was, he had found the fame that he dreamt of as a, as a youngster. And he was sickened by it. He, he didn't want the fame now that his heart had been turned over to Christ. He wanted, just like John, that for him to decrease and for Christ to, to increase. So now that his second wife had passed away and more children that had come had died, he met a, a publisher uh, who also took interest in his mission work, and they married. So his third wife, you almost get the sense of, uh, just like the Sadducees question, you know, how many widows does this person need to go through before you really think, do I want to marry this person? But thankfully, uh, they had a wonderful marriage, and they returned to Burma, uh, again, translating and ministering to the Burmese people. Um, at that point, he actually... Uh, died a couple years later in Burma, having spent more than half, almost two-thirds of his life in Burma, away from what we would think of as his American home. Now we're going to turn to other mission fields, David Livingston and Hudson Taylor, names you may have heard. Again, what we're looking at this evening, this first portion is going to be the foreign impact and movements uh, in the wake of the First Great Awakening. And in the second half of this evening, we're going to look at the domestic impact of the, the First Great Awakening, which uh, we may call the Second Great Awakening. And right now, you can see their birth dates are increasing. So we're going to come back to this period in the second half of this class, as well as uh, next time we're going to look again at a lot of movements during the 19th century. So we started with William Carey, who was the father of modern missions. Adoniram Judson in his wake on the, uh, from the American side, and now other big names in the, the mission ministry. Two British men, David Livingston, Hudson Taylor, very different uh, approaches to missions. I'm going to try to move through this really quickly because, like I say, the, the last um, part of our session tonight is very, is vitally important. Uh, Livingston was born in Scotland in 1813. Um, he was born to a poor family, went to work at the age of 10, uh, taught himself to read and write, and at age 25 entered medical school in Glasgow, Scotland. This man had an amazing personality. He was vibrant, uh, just boisterous, not boisterous, just uh, the kind of charismatic figure that people were attracted to. Moved to London, committed to do missions. He quit his uh, medical education, but he wanted to do missions, connected with the London Missionary Society, and decided to go ahead and finish his medical training in Britain, which he did. Uh, at the, um, oh, let's see, at, at the age of 27, um, actually in 1840, which would have been 27, he set sail for southern Africa. Now, 
a lot of interest went with Livingston. He was a very popular uh, personality. He was a great writer. So he wrote journals. Letters were published in that day, you know. And uh, a lot of his writings got back to um, England. Uh, one of the things that is quite interesting, and Lil has already alluded to this, there was a high cost for missions. And I was just sitting here thinking as Neil was talking how differently we view things today. Um, if, if, if a pastor's wife went into depression, what would happen? Most likely the church would say and everybody would say, look, your, your first responsibility is to your wife. Missionaries in this day didn't feel this way at all. In fact, the lifespan for a a, a missionary in Africa, a white missionary in Africa, was two years. I'm not sure if it was malaria. I can't recall. Mm. One missionary took his coffin with him and then ended up living for quite a few years. But Livingston's wife died from malaria not long. I think that's the case. There's so many facts jumbling together in our heads, and I don't have that exactly written, and it could have been. I think it was Livingston's wife, though, died from malaria. Livingston... Um, was a missionary who loved the Lord, uh, but he also loved capitalism. He loved commerce. He went with these colonial kinds of thoughts. I'm going to bring civilization to Africa. And that's, of course, one of the big criticisms that we have heard about missions over the years is this spirit that, hey, our way of life is way better than yours. Let me teach you about that. Then you can convert to Christ. We're going to see the exact opposite with Hudson Taylor. But Livingston uh, was an explorer. He was, emancipation was one of his deep passions. He desired to end the slave trade in Africa. Americans, um, British, slave traders from everywhere. He just wanted to put an end to slave trade. Ironically, toward the end of his life, it was those slave traders who supported his life in uh, Africa. Life just gets really crazy, doesn't it? <clears throat> um, Livingston was kind of lost, and the whole world was really worried about him. And then who was the man that went after him and finally just ran into him? He'd been searching for like six months, and the famous statement, Dr. Livingston, I presume. I don't know if you've heard of that before or not, but... Anything you want to add to that, Ted? You know anything about Livingston? Wasn't Stanley? Yes, it was Stanley, yes. Livingston, so we'd have to say that this man was as much a, is interested in social justice and also colonialism and colonizing Africa for Great Britain, although he was another one who just really didn't care how famous he got. He may have been, when he, when he left, his heart was set on serving the Lord there. Uh, there is one story I've, I've heard about Livingston. I, I, I know for a fact that he was mauled by a lion and he was trying to protect a village from this lion. Very badly on his left arm, it affected him for the rest of his life. But, mm. but the story is that a lady in England told him later, I awoke at a certain time of the night and I was... Oh, and then they got it to a specific date and was led to pray for you. And that's, that was exactly the time she prayed for him. And he died in Africa uh, by his bed saying prayers. So, um, or prayed just before he died. Again, my, my, my memory does not uh, 
is not my biggest friend at this age of life. Well, uh, let's look at Hudson Taylor, who uh, was famous for his missionary work in China. What do you know, anybody, what do you know about Hudson Taylor? Anything? You've got a got another child, I think, named. We've got missionaries all, we got Lees all over the place here tonight. Hudson, anything? What's that? right. God's work done God's way will never uh, lack God's supply. Interesting, though, uh, Hudson Taylor raised a lot of money. In fact, he came to America to raise money, became friends with Schofield, with D.L. Moody, uh, who became a big supporter of the Chineland Inland Mission. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. He was born in 1832, much like Judson, uh, born to Christian parents. His father was a lay Methodist preacher. Um, Taylor rejected that but was convicted, and at age 17, he was converted after reading a Christian tract called Poor Richard. I don't know anything about that tract, but that was really popular when I was a small child. Some of you remember that. Margaret, do you remember tracts going around? You guys remember this. Clayton's, don't you? So, uh, just a little pamphlet, you know, that you open and read. He read, well, I don't know, probably wasn't in that form in that day, but... um, it was the same idea. Uh, so he was converted and surrendered to the Lord's call to be a missionary to China just very soon after that. At 20, he moved again, uh, began studying medicine at the Royal London Hospital to aid his missionary endeavors. He thought, you know, this would be quite helpful. In 1854, Taylor landed in Shanghai um, on his first trip to China. This was... Um, China was in the middle of a civil war. He didn't let that affect him. And he very quickly decided, I'm going to blend in as much as I possibly can. He shaved his forehead and he grew the pigtail, and, you know, that comes down. The Q, they call it, I believe is the pronunciation. I'm not sure any, anybody is welcome to correct me on that. But it was the pigtail. And so he blended in as much as he could. And the Chinese really appreciated that. You would think some cultures might actually be offended by that, but the Chinese very much appreciated. On his first tour, he wrote these words to his sister Amelia um, in a letter. If I had a thousand pounds, China should have it. If I had a thousand lives, China should have them. No, not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious Savior. So, 1854, Hudson goes to China, Hudson Taylor. He's with another mission that he's not really all that crazy about. In 1860, he goes home with health problems. Um, And then in 1865, he formed the China Inland Mission with this following stated object. This is our object. We'd call it a purpose statement, mission statement, that kind of thing. The China Inland Mission was formed under a deep sense of China's pressing need and with an earnest desire constrained by the love of Christ and the hope of his coming to obey his command to preach the gospel to every creature. Its aim is, by the help of God, to bring the Chinese to a saving knowledge of the love of God in Christ by means of itinerant and localized work throughout the whole of the interior of China. 
In 1866, I want you to think about this, same thing we're going to hear, you know, about, uh, that we heard about Judson. Taylor returned to China with a large group of missionaries. Um, and they were also committed to dress and live like the Chinese. This was actually fairly scandalous for the women to dress like this. But they said, look, this is where we're going. And you see the different approach. Hut Livingston's trying to take British culture and Jesus to the Africans, and Hudson Taylor is taking Jesus to the Chinese, period. In fact, I will do anything to reach the Chinese. Um, so, through the years that he was there on this second journey, Taylor lost his wife, and, his, and they lost four of their eight children over the years and a good bit of it some of it due to malnourishment just imagine that the deprivation they suffered um, in 1869 Hudson Taylor experienced a, he had a spiritual experience that we would call something like the second blessing of the Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't know what to do with it theologically, you know. I'm, I'm not a big fan of that kind of thing. It made a definite impact in, in, in Taylor's life. Look, here's the thing. God does what God's going to do, you know. I mean, look, I, I, I would call myself a Calvinist, but I have to acknowledge God works through all kinds of people in all kinds of different ways. And he's just pleased to do it. I heard someone say, you ever think about, <laughs> when you think about all the different worship styles from the very formal liturgical to the wild run in the aisles kind of shouting and, you know, just drums making a cacophonous, you know, just, it's just, that it's like this beautiful symphony of praise in God's ears and this aroma in his nostrils. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not just saying anything goes. We're going to talk. That's going to be a huge part of the second part of this session is how important theology is in effect in our practice and, and the results that come from that. But in all, Taylor visited China 11 times. He remarried. They, he and his second wife had, had stillborn twins in China, but that, who knows if that was to do with the, the missions but there was and again greatly used of God had this spiritual experience but there was quite a bit of conflict between China Inland Mission that he had formed in London and China Inland Mission on the ground in the Boxer Rebellion in the early uh, 20th century China Inland Mission suffered a lot of losses uh, Taylor's health was not good most of his years uh, but amazing impact in China. When I went to China in 2005, uh, Heather Flythe now, she was Heather Wilson at the time, one of our students, was a missionary there. And it was an amazing trip. I was getting the opportunity to witness all over the place. There, There's this great movement of God going on in China. And then the Heather was with Campus Crusade, and there was a group of them there. And the leader of, of, of this group, who had actually been in Beijing, and now he was down in Chengdu, said, uh, 
we had a meeting and he was saying, in 1966, Mao Zedong started the great cultural revolution. Communist, he was just a horrible, wicked man. It's amazing that Hitler gets so much press because in, the, in the 20th century. Stalin and Mao Zedong and what's our, our man in Cambodia, just as bad. Horrible, horrific, uh, mass exterminations. And Tung, Mao Zedong tried to wipe out religion, and he did a pretty good job, except for Christianity. And when the communists began loosening the controls a little bit, uh, there's this foundational work that Hudson Taylor mm. was responsible for and all of the people that w went with him and all of the people who were just shed, that a lot of white blood that was shed. And um, when I say white, white missionaries, that's going to be significant in just a moment. Um, and um, Christianity took off. In the, in the late 80s. <clears throat> and there's an amazing revival going on now. In fact, it feels like that's where the gospel's going. When it moves from here, that's where it will be. And <clears throat> it's interesting, the, uh, it, it's not going as well as they had hoped, but there was a big movement in China last decade uh, called Back to Jerusalem. I don't know if you heard about it, but Chinese said, you know, white Americans shed their blood for us to have the life in Christ that we have now. They can't really move freely in Arabic countries, but we can. We're going to take the gospel all the way mm. back around the globe. In the northern hemisphere, the gospel has always gone west. You know, it started in Jerusalem, moved up through Asia Minor, then through Europe, then over to America, and now it's heading over to China. It took a long time between, you know, Europe and, and China, but, but it, today, of course, everything moves so much more quickly. But it's just amazing the way God works. And, and you know what? Here's um, two entirely different people. Livingston, a very highly educated man, uh, actually educated himself. Hudson Taylor, very highly educated. Um, and God used them both. Just used them both. He uses us from whatever. So this is a, a map of Livingston's travels in South Africa. Yeah, he came into Southern Africa and then moved up. Spent a lot of time in Central Africa. and What's our man's name again, Ted? They found him? Stanley. Came in from East Africa. Yeah, Dr. Stanley. And uh, so you can see where he went. I wish I knew more about Livingston. I don't, I don't know how much um, real gospel ministry that he did. I've always heard about him as a great guy, but... I looked on, in several sources and I couldn't see much about his gospel ministry. I saw about all this other stuff, you know, his exploration and his interest in ending slave trade and all that type of stuff. When you're looking at the, um, the difference, be difference in goals between those two missionaries, it, it's kind of the same, the same conversation is going on in mission boards now. It is. Do we go in with the idea of changing the culture or do we simply bring Christ and let the natives, let Christ change the culture? And I, th I think we're seeing a, a return to that more so than yeah, and previous years. Rightly so. And we'll probably cover this toward the end of our sessions. But South Korea is a great example mm -hmm. of indigenous uh, 
kind of people going in and, and letting the gospel blossom from within instead of trying to bring it in and saying yeah. you got to be like us and then you, like can, then you can believe like us. But it's, I, I was fascinated in one of our missions committee meetings when Ted McKinney and several of you, some of you were there, not several, but was talking about how in Suriname, where Ted served, how just about the whole village was converted. Mm. But now their kids have grown up in this Christian environment and they're like, yeah, well, whatever. Yeah. You know, mm. so it's like, it's a whole new mission field. And the same thing's happening in South Korea. They, they've mm. been sending missionaries, but now people are, it's wearing out a little bit. That, that's just, that's something, isn't it? The way the gospel, it takes root and it just catches fire, but then it's kind of like it dies out and then it moves on. Every generation has to to wrestle with the gospel and decide what they need to do. Yeah. 